turn in our Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 14. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and just wave and they'll get a Bible into your hands. It'll be marked to our passage today. That way you can hear the Word of God but see it with your own eyes as well. And that's what we want. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit in the mount of the congregation on the furthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High God. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. And those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness, and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for all of the different ways that you have given us to worship you. And now as we continue our worship and the study of your word, we pray you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. We just want to commune in our hearts with you, with your Holy Spirit, as you just minister this passage to our lives, to our relationship with you. We pray, Lord, that for those that stand before you right now that are not yet Christians, and we ask that as they listen to your word today, that your Holy Spirit would help them to recognize the truth of it and their need for a relationship with you, their need for the Savior, Jesus, that you've sent into the world, and that today they would enter into that relationship. All of this requires your doing, Lord, and so we ask for that, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I remember event, an event in my life, my Christian life, uh, many years ago now when I was a new Christian. And I was home and uh, I turned on the television and uh, tuned into a Christian television station. And it was broadcasting a, uh, what I assume to be a recorded church service of a very well-known pastor uh, at that time, a little eccentric, but very, very well-known. And he announced to the congregation that morning that he was beginning a 50-part series on the devil. And uh, when I was in that living room and I heard that, I literally, though all alone, I laughed out loud. I thought, who in the world would want to hear a 50-part series of sermons, is what he said, on the devil, to come to church for an entire year, and the focus is upon the devil. And I thought to myself, I I don't want to know that much about the devil. And to think about the chorus, give me Jesus, I'd rather have 50 weeks invested in that. But it is important for us to know something of the devil. Uh, even as, uh, as Christians. And uh, because the Bible says, as Paul said, that he is our adversary, and uh, more than the fact that he's our adversary, Paul says that we're not to be ignorant of his devices that he uses against us. Now, some people don't uh, believe in the existence of a literal devil. Uh, and, and so you say, well, what do you put up against that? And to, in my mind, it's enough to say that Jesus did. And uh, Jesus spoke on a regular basis of the devil. And Jesus spoke to his disciples, as we'll see a little bit later in the sermon, of the fact that he was present at the very moment of Satan's fall, as that fall is recorded for us here in Isaiah chapter 14. Personally, I don't know how people can explain uh, some of the pure evil that has gone on in human history that goes on even today 
in the form of crime or war or uh, wiping out of entire groups of people. Just this weekend I read where uh, this ISIS group took uh, 50 men and women from out of a village, lined them up, and then just shot them dead. They don't know anything about them. Their first step, somebody nursed every one of them. Somebody helped them take their first step. Loved by how many people, and they just come out and shoot them and put them in a heap. And crimes where you have serial killers and things not even that heinous. And I don't know how you can explain history or explain, I certainly can't, life as I'm forced to process it. And the information in life, the events of life, uh, even today, without recognizing there is a great force for evil that is not common in every person in life, but that rises up regularly in history and in human lives with atrocities that you look at and say, this is an expression of uh, uh, evil somewhere. This is the personification of evil. The world does not make sense to me apart from the existence of the devil. In our text this morning, it provides us with some very uh, important revelation uh, concerning the devil. And that revelation relates to his fall. When you pick up the Bible and you begin to read it from the beginning, uh, the first time that we run into the devil in the Bible is Genesis chapter 3. And when we find him in Genesis chapter 3, he's already fallen. He's already gone to the dark side. He is already tempting Eve and then Adam and Eve to rebel against God and to engage in sin. And so he comes on the scene already in this fallen condition, but Genesis doesn't give us a backstory to how he fell. And here, other places in the Bible as well, we're given that backstory, how it happened. And more importantly than that, the things that are important for us to learn as Christians and understand about his fall as we endeavor to live for God and to serve the Lord. Now, in Isaiah chapter 14, the prophet Isaiah is describing a great judgment that is going to come upon the king of an ancient empire, an empire that became very wicked uh, by the name of Babylon. And Babylon ultimately became known for tremendous wickedness, uh, tremendous uh, cruelty in its treatment uh, of people. And as Isaiah is laying out this description of the judgment that is going to come upon this king, uh, quite abruptly in verse 12, he interrupts that whole thought progression to kind of segue into the description of a fall of someone that he calls Lucifer, the devil. And the elaboration concerning the fall of the devil here, as is described here, isn't as abrupt as we might think. Because God is expressing his judgment that's going to come upon the king of Babylon. And when he comes to verse 12, he just simply moves to describing the judgment who will come upon, that will come upon the king who is behind the king. In other words, Satan was the king that pulled the strings, so to speak, of the king of Babylon. And so uh, he was the unseen force behind the king of Babylon and the kingdom of Babylon. And so this passage is really an exact match of everything that we know about the devil from the Bible. Again, including Jesus' description uh, to his disciples concerning the fall of the devil. He had sent them out, you remember, to preach the gospel, uh, to cast out demons, to heal people prior to Jesus' going into various areas in his ministry. They came back and they were all excited about the fact Wow, we have the power to cast out demons. And Jesus responded to them and said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I was present at the fall of the devil. 
And he said, Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that you can cast out demons, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Jesus was present at the very fall of the devil. And the language that he uses to describe his fall is most similar, very similar to that opening line of verse 12. And these words here that are described in verses 13 through 17, and especially 13 through 15, really doesn't apply fully to any mere mortal man. Now, what this passage reveals to us about the devil is that at one time he was highly esteemed in heaven. So at one time he had a right relationship with God. His position in heaven was very, very significant. His position in heaven was, in fact, glorious. And what we know from a parallel passage in the Bible that we're going to read in just a moment up on the screen is that the devil was and is an angel. He is referred to as the anointed cherub, stunningly beautiful, and evidently a worship leader of some kind by the description. It isn't at all unlikely that he was uh, the head or the leader of the worship of God by angels in uh, eternity past. And the passage, uh, that passage, as along with this passage here, this Isaiah passage, Satan is described as the power in the Ezekiel passage that we're going to see here in Ezekiel 28 as the power or the patron behind the king of Tyre. Let's put the passage up and we'll read it together. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, and here's the description of the devil, You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. He never wore polyester, (laughs) never wore cotton, never wore wool. This is, to look at him was to see him adorned in this kind of beauty and this kind of uh, wealth. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. And so here he has uh, the indication of uh, these are wor- instruments of worship, uh, the timbrels, the pipes. It, 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 the indication could be that these were things that he used in leading the worship of God or engaging in the worship of God or that these things were built into his very being, that he was a an instrument of worship, that it was a part of uh, the expression of himself in the same way that we might move an arm or that we might speak. You are the anointed cherub. There it is, an angel. Angel who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. His access, his position in heaven. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Similar in many ways to the passage here in Isaiah chapter 14. Now, all of this, of course, dispels the cartoonish idea of the devil that he is uh, this figure in a tight red leotard suit and has a pointed tail and a pitchfork of, uh, of, of some kind. Now, he was an angel of astonishing uh, uh, beauty. And, and so hell, it tells us here in verses 16 and 17, when Satan is ultimately cast into hell, those who are in hell are going to, the thing that is going to be astonished them is that such evil and such wickedness could come out of something or someone who was so beautiful. How could an angel who possesses that kind of beauty as a means of being created by God, how could 
that that angel choose then to rebel against God and then engage in and inspire such wickedness in human history. Very often people will talk about the devil as being the opposite of God. And I think we have to be careful uh, not to think of him in that way. He opposes the Lord, but he's not the opposite of God. Because to say that he is the opposite of God intimates equality with God. That God is over here in this category, and then on the evil side, that the devil, in terms of power and in terms of wisdom and resources, that he is equally so on the fallen side of things. And that simply uh, isn't true at all. He is no equal of God. God has no equal. Praise the Lord. There is no one who compares to him. It would be more accurate to call the devil the opposite of Michael the archangel, uh, Gabriel the angel. Those uh, appear to be his peers in the scripture. So he would be the opposite of an angel, but not the opposite of God. And of course, Michael and Gabriel, they uh, kept their first estate. They did not join him in his rebellion against God. As an angel, as powerful as the devil is, and the devil, for us, for human beings who are not born again and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the devil is greater than uh, man more powerful uh, than man. But he still is a finite being. He still is a creation of God. And because he is a creation of God, uh, he wasn't created to fall. Angels have a self-will, created with a self-will in the same way that man is. Otherwise, our love or our noble actions or our courage would mean nothing if there wasn't the opportunity to do something uh, opposite that. It is the fact that, that we do have choice that makes these things meaningful to God and meaningful also to man. And so here related to the devil, the distance between him and God is, is infinite. It's as great as the distance is between us as human beings as God's creation and uh, and uh, God, and so it's uh, that gulf between the devil and God is infinite, and that's why it's foolish to follow the devil or to join him in his rebellion against God. It's a folly to believe that he will be successful or that anyone will be successful ultimately in their rebellion against God and the overthrow of God. We notice, too, that Satan has fallen from the glory of his uh, former estate, the lofty heights of that former estate. Uh, Isaiah says, how, and it's a powerful way of saying it, how you are fallen from heaven. And it doesn't mean that the devil doesn't have access to heaven today. He does. The Bible teaches that he is very active in heaven right now. And you know what he's doing? He is accusing the brethren, accusing Christians before the throne of God day and night related to our wrongdoing. So he does have access and uh, he uses that access today. But one day that access to heaven is uh, going to be ended during the great tribulation. Revelation chapter 12. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought. And they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. And so the great dragon was cast out. That's the devil. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And so this speaks of here in Isaiah chapter 14, speaks of the fact that he had fallen or he had disqualified himself for the purposes and the plans of God for his life in heaven. And it, it, it is, uh, there is um, an indication in the Bible that fully a third of the other angels followed him in his rebellion We know them as uh, demons today. And again, Jesus is the Son of God. He witnessed this very event, and uh, he spoke of it to his disciples. Now, we come to what is most valuable to us in the passage, and that is 
why did Satan fall and how did he fall? And because that is so important to us and important to uh, God that we understand that the Holy Spirit devotes the greatest space to this very subject in verses 13 and 14. The cause of Satan's fall is summarized in five I will statements that are recorded in those two verses. In each of those I will, he said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend. I will, I will, I will, I will. Each of those five I wills are declared in defiance of God, in defiance of the will of God, in defiance of the plan of God. Uh, for Lucifer, for uh, Satan, or before his uh, fall. In each of those I will statements, we have Satan elevating his own will over and above the will of God for his life. He's exalting his own will over and above uh, God's plan for his life. And at the heart of all sin is this I will When my will runs contrary to God's word and his will for my life, and I choose my will over God's word and over his will for my life. It's when I read some command in his word concerning maybe honesty or giving or service or forgiveness, and I come up with my own idea about how Uh, I will handle that area of my life as opposed to how he wants me to handle that area of my life. And I obey my idea instead of his. And all of that's uh, known as pride. And it's the same pride that led to Satan's fall, this idea that I'm smarter than God, to see myself above, which is what pride means most often in the Bible, to see myself above not only other people, but to see myself above even God and his wisdom, his plan, uh, his commandments, and then to defy them. It was C.S. Lewis who said, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. It's a very powerful thing that he said. And it's right in line with what's spoken of here in this passage. Think about the danger of pride. It was pride that took him from the beauty and the glory and the excellence of what was his experience, as we read in Ezekiel chapter 28 up on the screen, uh, that turned him into the monster that he is today. The danger of pride. And so the elevation of self-will occurs if we respond to God's purpose and plan for our lives and not only his word but his plan for our lives and we choose to ignore it and instead we live our lives on the basis of I will. I'm going to live my life precisely as I want to, even professing to be a Christian. And sin is simply rebellion against the will of God for my life as that will is revealed in the word of God and as it is revealed by his Holy Spirit to us personally. I think it's illuminating to realize that the central letter of the word pride is I because it's at the core of pride. But I also think that it, 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 it's always pride that causes me to elevate my will above God's word and above his will for my life. I think it's also illuminating to realize that the central letter in the word sin is I. Some of you say, I've heard that before. That's great, but not everybody has, and I want everybody to hear it at least once. Why is it significant that the letter I is central, center letter of the word sin? It's because I is central to all sin. If I steal, the stealing is a sin, but it's a symptom sin. It's not the core sin. Why did I steal? Because I elevated my will in that situation above the will of God. And so it goes not just related to stealing, but with gossiping or lying or drunkenness or so forth. You can fill in all of the blanks. Self-will is at the core of all sin. 
to elevate my will above the word of God, above the will of God, uh, the plan of God for my life is always sin. And then when we choose to run our own lives in opposition to God's word and his plan for our life, we are taking the position in our life that is intended for God alone. It's a position that only he is qualified uh, to uh, take and equipped for. And when we do so, we're following in the devil's footsteps. And it is the overthrow of the whole created order. And it always ends in disaster. Now, the reason this is important for us to understand as Christians especially as Christians living in this American culture, this whole thing of the I and the pride and the I will of the fall of of the devil is because all of this is epidemic in our American culture. This this self, this self-will, this I, me, my epidemic that is all around us, that is we live in, is, in are just uh, soaked in every day that we live as Christians in this culture. When we read verses 13 and 14, it's very clear that the devil had an eye problem, didn't he? And, but so does our culture, and we have inherited that from him. It has not been inherited from God. It comes from somewhere, and it has come from the devil. The Bible declares that one of the marks of the last days preceding Jesus' return uh, to rapture the church uh, and take us into heaven, one of the signs morally of the world uh, prior to that event will be that men will be lovers of themselves. And we see the evidence of that self um, Epidemic all around us in, in the United States, this uh, self-occupied, self-consumed thing that has just gobbled up uh, since I was a child. I mean, it's moved uh, like gangbusters uh, where people's decisions in life are made, God said, would occur in the last days where made solely on the basis of selfishness rather than on the basis of what would be right or wrong here. What is the right thing to do in God's eyes? What would be the right thing uh, to do uh, in terms of its effect upon others? Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. That was spoken by uh, President John F. Kennedy. And that statement is as foreign I mean, it's 50, 60 years old, and I don't know who could get elected on the basis of that. And yet it really struck a chord when he was president of the United States. But that's how fast our country has moved in that direction. And we see the evidence of this self-will, this I-will, this I-me-my all around us. It's evidenced in... Uh, so often in the skyrocketing divorce rates. Not every divorce is because of that, but I would say many divorces are, and in my experience, most uh, divorces are. And we see within our culture this increased sense of self-entitlement. It all comes out of this I will, this I, me, and my, the Look at the violence and the brutality of people toward other, how uncivil we're becoming increasingly as a culture. And what's at the core of it? I, me, my, I will, I will. It's more, my will is more important than God. And if I believe it's more important than God, I'm certainly going to believe it's more important than other people and start to express it. I think about the mortgage blow up several years back and I think to myself in terms of the whole I will thing, how in the world could people bundle these terrible loans that they knew were going to get stuck with some lending institution somewhere, put these things together uh, in such numbers and at such dollar values to realize that one day somebody's going to have to pay for this and it could lead to a worldwide recession, which is exactly what it did, a recession that we're not out of yet. And as long as they could go home making millions and tens of millions of dollars by selling these things. I don't know how people live with themselves. 
completely dominated by I will. All I care about is me. I don't care about what God thinks. I don't care about what happens to other people and that complete domination uh, in, uh, in that way. And so it's, it's all, all around us, all around us. That kind of thinking, decision-making everywhere. And no sense of shame associated with selfishness anymore, is there? This self-love, this, uh, this whole idea of you're the most important person in the whole world has been, become so successful in its education that there's no sense of shame about being selfish anymore. You know, when I was in school, I'm going ways back now, but when I was in elementary school, if a teacher ever stood in front of the class and saw you do something selfish and then rebuked you for being selfish in front of the class, it was like the worst thing they could say. You just wanted to crawl into a, a hole uh, when, when that, uh, that kind of thing would be uh, said. And here you are being selfish, you're self-consumed. But you know, this word selfish has been virtually excised from our national vocabulary. I can't tell you the last time I've heard the term selfish used uh, publicly. It used to be considered an undesirable trait, an unfavorable trait, that if we didn't correct this in a child, it was going to lead them into a life that would ultimately lead them to ruin. And now we've flipped completely the opposite, and we think it's the way for them uh, to lead them into uh, success. And it's an absolute uh, disaster. And so today this whole I will, I will, and self-focus and selfishness being nurtured. And then we're shocked when it produces uh, generations of self-loving and self-consumed uh, human beings who place themselves above uh, the good of the whole and the good of everyone else around them. In this view, uh, in this vein, I think about uh, the whole issue of abortion and uh, I hesitate, like probably all pastors do, to bring abortion up because it's so prevalent in our culture and so prevalent in so many people's histories. And I never, ever want to create undue harm in a person's heart for something that's been forgiven by God and is uh, completely covered and that we no longer have to think about concerning our past. But you know, for a pastor in the United States of America in the year 2014 to never mention abortion and what it says about us as a people and as a culture would be like being a prophet in the Old Testament ministering at the time in which the entire kingdom of Israel was given over to the worship of Baal and never mentioned Baal. You have to mention it. Because it says something about us and something that we need to examine. And the whole abortion thing is, I will run amok. It's I will off the graph. Where you convince a generation that their will is so important, so supreme, that my, my will is more important than even the life of a child. And not only the life of a child, but the life of my own child. And what's at the core of it? I will, I will, I will, where I elevate my will above God's will, how he sees life. I will elevate my will even above the life of an unborn child. Some of us watched in horror in recent weeks when we saw that ISIS guy. It's the same guy with the British accent who has, just with a knife right on camera, videotaped and then released to the whole world, just decapitated, just cut a person's head off. And the whole world was shocked and was stunned and horrified by it. But that happens in a more graphic way over 3,200 times every day in the United States of America to babies who are in a womb and who have no voice 
and they're out of sight and they're out of mind. And our culture just moves forward. We're so sophisticated. We're so smart. We're so civilized. And we're so advanced. And God is so dumb. And we are so smart. And this whole thing of abortion on demand and it being legalized in our our country, it makes us monsters. We are monsters. Anyone that would believe in that to advance that as a political agenda. I look at a person who believes in that. I look them in the eye. They need to be saved. But I'm looking at a monster who can rationalize self-will in a way that is clearly demonic. I think about as well in how ingrained this is, so dangerously ingrained Uh, In our culture, I think about, and of course, abortion and homosexuality, the hot buttons uh, of the culture today. And I remember a pastor that I know very, very well, and he was on a blog, and he did a blog, and he's never going to mention, you know, homosexuality again. It drives too many people away, and it's unpopular, and all of this, and I have... uh, uh, Anyway, I won't get into my feelings related to all of that. But this is where the war is being fought for the soul of the nation. And uh, you lose those battles. You give those battles up. It's not like you then um, satisfy the devil or you satisfy the flesh or the culture. It will just be replaced by the next things. So sometimes the homosexual community gets very upset because there's such a focus upon this um, in terms of Christians, and they don't realize that there was this kind of a focus on, uh, you know, other issues in earlier times. It just happens to be this is the one that is our time in history that's to be resisted because it's harmful to people. But we see this whole move within the homosexual community and beyond for the redefining of marriage to include homosexuality. And it's, it's so dangerous. This is, marriage is an institution of God. Uh, this is God's idea. It is a foundation for society. It is the foundation for society. It is the foundation for family. And the family unit, as God defines it, is the foundation for civilization. You just don't mess with that. That's a crazy experiment. And, and you, you, you can't fiddle with these things like people have through all of the ages without opening up Pandora's box and introducing things that you just can't even believe because then, then what's the next person under the guise or under the domination of their I will? Where does that go? So you get your I will, but it won't stop there. And then where does it go next? And it ought to horrify. When, if I was... If I was when, if I, I'm not homosexual. I have other problems, other sins that God has forgiven me of and he saved me from in the same way that he will any homosexual or any sinner. And, and so, but the idea, when, when I came to God ultimately, came to the end of myself, how smart I was, all of this began to become the casualty of my own decisions and my own sin, I didn't come into Christianity or then come to the Bible and say that God has to change his mind to accommodate my sin or I'm going to run home. I wanted God to be strong. And I, do, and I, didn't, I didn't even want the culture to change to accommodate my sin. I knew it was wrong. So this whole idea of that in order to get my will, in order for me to be happy, I'm going to tamper with something that will destabilize the marriage, destabilize the family unit, and then it will have repercussions all of the way out from that. And it's all I will. It is I want my will, and I don't care what the consequences are. But that's how common it is in the culture. That's how deeply ingrained it is within the culture. The self uh, movement is now so entrenched within our culture, no one even bats an eye 
at its, its existence here, my rights, my rights, my rights, no matter that it's rebellion against God or it disrespects God, no matter how many other people have to pay a price for my rights and the culture as a whole, so entrenched in our culture now that no one even thinks twice about it, much less stops and asks about its origins. Where does it come from? And where does it end? And again, the casualties of the I will. It's all around us in families and cities and school. Everywhere you want to look, the, the casualties of the I will, they're, they're piled up in heaps and mounds. And nobody stops and looks and says, is this healthy? Is this good? Where did this come from? Where does this kind of uh, thing lead? And the devil is behind every bit of self-will that's expressed at the expense of God's word and every act of selfishness that's expressed at the expense of others. It all started with him. So let's close with this. How in the world do we as Christians, this is a powerful force around us, so how in the world do we as Christians keep from being conformed by all of this? to keep the culture from conforming us into, I will, into the image of the devil, so to speak, as opposed to our desire to be conformed in the image of Christ. Jesus declared to his disciples, he said, if anyone desires to come after me, you want to follow me? Three things. Number one, deny yourself. And he didn't mean deny yourself something. Deny the whole I will kind of life. He said, anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. Uh, Religious leaders came to Jesus, a lawyer. Uh, He came to Jesus and he said, what is the greatest commandment? Big discussion going on between the religious leaders of the Jews on what was the greatest commandment of the 613 commandments that made up the law of Moses. And Jesus declared an answer to that. He said, here's the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. And then almost as if he was anticipating the guy saying, all right, what's the second greatest? He gave him the second greatest. He said, and the second is like unto it, that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, upon those two commandments hangs all of the law and the prophets. Those two commandments are an encapsulation of the entirety of the Old Testament. And those two passages teach us that the blessed life, the life that God intends for each of us is found in putting God first in my life, then putting other people second in my life, and then putting myself third. I heard somebody put it, it was a friend actually in this church, put it this way uh, several years ago, and it always stuck with me. And so maybe you've heard that anacronym joy. Where is joy found? And the anacronym is Jesus first, others second, and you third. And that's the truth uh, of the matter. It's very, very simple, very good though for memory. Jesus first, others second, and myself third. It's the only hope, doing that in the power of the Spirit, the only hope of not being reconsumed by my own will and uh, even without the encouragement of the culture, much less with the indoctrination of the culture. So what is this J-O-Y, Jesus first, others second, myself third? What does that look like practically? Number one, we need to put Jesus first in our life, and it operates this way. When my will is in conflict with God's word or his will for my life, then I am to deny my will. No matter what the cost to myself, to the big I, me, my that lives inside of me, in terms of my comfort, in terms of monetarily or materially, in terms of position or in terms of promotion or power or reputation, God's word says this, I'm going to put Jesus first and I'm going to obey his word no matter what cost it is to my selfishness. Because that where my will will take me in life is a completely different place than where 
obedience to God's word will take me in, in life. Two entirely different qualities of life. We want to go where Jesus is going. And second, and it is we need practically to then put others before ourselves. Taking their good into consideration and even elevating their good above our own. Let's take a silly thing. Both both of you come to the uh, same empty parking space at the mall at Christmas time. Oh, you know. I mean, I start to work it out in my mind. I saw it first. I got here a quarter of an inch ahead of you. And I mean, I will is in full gear. And it's on display inside. I've got enough pride that I don't let my wife know usually what she's sitting right there. And it's the perfect it's a perfect opportunity to just give way. You give way, you go ahead and take it. I'll go ahead and find another one on that. And it's just something as small as that to something far bigger than that. Saying, I'm going to establish a lifestyle of doing number one, obeying God, and number two, doing what is best for the other person. Even at even it, when it represents a sacrifice for me. And you think about that and it looks like, man, that is going to be the worst life that a person could ever live, but it explodes us into life as God intends it. It explodes us into the life of Jesus because that's the life that he lived. And Jesus said, He has come into the world to give us life and to give it more abundantly. And it's found in that particular uh, place as opposed to just living this small, petty, little, selfish, ugly, I will life. Those are the ugliest persons in the whole world. And you know some of them. You might be one of those people. The smallest prison in the world is the skin around our body, if that's the kind of person who's inside of that skin. And it is obedience to God's will and putting others above ourselves that is the only escape from that selfishness and that dominant thing that dominated even the devil and, and to move us into the beauty of the life that Christ has uh, planned for us. And so joy, it's just an easy way uh, to remember this and to resist the conforming pressure of the culture, this I will tidal wave that's all around us, and to just situation by situation, decision by decision, look at it and say, what does God tell me to do here? What is his will? Um, What would be best for others? And put that above myself and then to have myself Factor in number third, and it defies logic to believe that the greatest life a person could live could ever be found in that place, but that's where life is found, and it's there if we want to experience it. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, Satan's greatest goal in your life is not to addict you to drugs or alcohol or uh, pornography or... Uh, fame or power or luxury or all these kind of things. Those are just means to an end. He has one goal for every man, woman, and child in life. And that goal is to get you to stay so self-willed in your life that you never surrender to God and you never put your faith in Jesus Christ as a result of surrendering to God And you end up in hell as a participant with him for all of eternity. That's all he cares about for you. For some people, he'll use addiction uh, and uh, certain other things to get them into that kind of life, to distract them away from God. For other people, he will put you on top of the world and fill you with so much pride that God and Christianity looks like the dumbest thing that a person could ever invest their life in. He doesn't care. 
He knows you. He studies you. He knows what will work in your life. And all he cares about is to keep you dominated with I will so sufficiently that you reject God's offer to you. The offer that Jesus made famous in the most famous thing he's ever spoken in the Bible, John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Don't be a sucker for the devil. He's real. Don't be fooled by his message. Don't believe him. Believe God's message. Believe God's assessment of you as a sinner in need of a Savior. And put your faith in that Savior today. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service here. And they would love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God. There is no sin or a lifetime of sin that is greater than the forgiveness that is found in the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Come forward today, receive that forgiveness, and then enter into a quality of life that you could never believe existed, a quality of life that is infinitely greater than anything you've ever experienced under the I will and influence of the devil. And it's all waiting for you. And it's just a prayer away. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and what it makes so clear what we can get so used to and conformed to, seduced by. Thank you that you look right through everything and see it just for what it is and you let us know. We pray for our lives as your children. And we pray that you would help us starting right now in each one of our lives. To whatever degree, Lord, this I will of the devil and the culture is still marking our lives, dominating our lives and our decision making. We pray that you would just expose that inside of us and that you would take us by the hand and that you would lead us into an altogether different quality of life found under that joy. And we ask that you would supernaturally remind us later today and tomorrow and then the next day and as is needed all the way until you come for us to put you first, Lord, and then to put others first in our decision-making and then to put ourselves in that third place knowing that as we take care of others, You will take care of us. Lord, help us not to miss the glory of that life. All that is found there under the intoxication of the self-will that is all around us. We trust you to do it, Lord. We ask for it and we look forward to experiencing it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.